Welcome to New World of Work, a podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce. I'm Rhys Black, Head of Workplace Design at Oyster, a global employment platform making it easier than ever to build a brilliant team on an international scale. On New World of Work, we'll hear from some of the world's best and brightest people and culture experts on cutting edge topics that people operations professionals need to hear today, all through a global lens. Join us as we navigate this new world of work together and learn more about each other along the way. I have a favor to ask you. New World of Work wants to know what you think about the podcast. If you can find the time, we ask that you take our two minute listener survey at bit.ly forward slash NWOW survey. Your feedback will help improve the podcast so that we can make future episodes that feature engaging guests and actionable advice that you want to hear. Please visit bit.ly forward slash NWOW survey or click the survey link in the show notes below. The employee experience is shaped by every company touchpoint that a candidate or staff member encounters. Similar to the teams that design and build the products that we ship to clients and customers, as PeopleOps leaders, we have the opportunity to create touchpoints that our staff can use and feel excited about using. When we see our companies as the product, everything from offer letters to benefits packages can be created by using a design mindset that puts the user first. This is an opportunity for us to be leaders in our companies and create a real difference for our staff. In this episode, I sit down with Richard Maybe, the co-founder and CEO of Duro. Duro enables in-house legal and business teams to create, approve, sign and manage contracts in one unified workspace. Richard and I discuss some real examples of how both Oyster and Duro have been built like products and some of the lessons we've learned along the way. I hope you enjoy. So I'm Richard Maybe. I'm one of the co-founders of Juro, and uh, I started my career as a corporate lawyer. Uh, so right back in the day, most of the work I did was in some ways around contracts. You know, when we started Juro, we kind of knew that there was some something painful around contracts. Um, I think we learned a lot about that from our early customers, right? So when we got really deep into the pain point, it really helped us kind of articulate that better. And now our, our mission today, which is to help the world agree more by making contracts frictionless and accessible to everyone, that that took us a little bit of time to formulate. Um, you know, there was something there that was important, but, you know, we had to get really, really, really specific. And then like one level down from that, we spent a lot of time working out, well, you know, this is a kind of bold mission. So how do we how do we make this true, right? What are the things that we must do in order for that claim to be true? And I think there's there's really kind of two things. One is the value proposition. And of course, we refine that over time. But increasingly, we found this sweet spot, I think, especially working with tech companies who are wanting to move away from sort of, you know, PDF, Word, DocuSign, email into a browser-native, all-in-one system. Um, so that enables them to you know, create, execute, and manage legal contracts at scale, whether they're you know, offer letters and employment contracts, whether they're sales contracts, vendor agreements. You can now do all of that within Juro. And and second, um, what what are the the things that we can actually point to in the company which tell us that we can be successful against that mission? I think that's the other big 
area of focus for us, which is not just what product are we building and for whom, but actually like how do we build the company that's going to deliver on, on the mission. The reason I believe that companies should be built like products, I think, comes from a few different areas. So the first thing is this post, I think it was probably a LinkedIn post I put out, which got this huge amount of traction from the, um, the, the kind of people and talent community was, I think I said something like, you know, um, the company is the product, um, people uh, team are the product managers, stop treating them like a support service. Um, and it felt that there was a lot of frustration in the community, even now in 2022, where people sort of have this old school view of, of, of HR. Um, so, so I think like one, one thing that, like one reason for it has been that simply I've experienced working with a great people and talent team, and I've known that actually the value that can be added from a team that operates in that way is extremely powerful. I think the second reason is actually, you know, starting companies, you know, we're a contract automation platform. So when people join Juro, they rarely share the same level of excitement that I have about legal contracts, right? This is not the most sexy vertical in the world. So Often we ask, you know, why do you join Juro? And they'll 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 typically talk about, well, I, I joined because I really like the mission of the company, or I joined because you know you had the best like handbook in the market, or I joined because the Glassdoor reviews were like, like five stars or whatever it was. So we, we started hearing a lot of these things that said, well, I'm joining this company, even though like the product is like cool and whatever, but it's not my primary interest. I'm joining because I, th- I think this this product called the company is really really cool. And then the third reason is that. You know, I had some product experience, you know, my co-founder is a, a product person. So I think just naturally the way in which we thought about building the company has been quite product centric. But as Juro scaled, we've had to just like any other function, go and hire exec leadership to, to scale that. And the, the more we've kind of thought about who exactly are the people to take that mantra and do it probably better than the founders can do it, or we hope better than the founders can do it. And we started looking at the skill set. And so, you know, what what kind of people are they? And we started thinking, well, actually, people who can think in systems, people who are very strategic, people who can do that, like product level thinking. And as we've kind of came to that realization in the scale up phase, something clicked and the people and talent team were properly enabled and started doing sort of great work. And that has paid huge dividends to us. Thanks for joining me today, Richard. If a company can be thought of as a product, then your people team are your product managers. And this is something that we talk about and we actually work this way. Uh, We've changed our operations in in various different ways to work in this way and make sure we're we're building Oyster in this way. So I'd love to talk more about that point you're mentioning that a lot of people joined the company for the company rather than for the product. Um, was that intentional? Was that something that you you, you kind of identified from day one and, and you thought, okay, we're going to make this a fantastic place to work and we're going to revolutionize on, on the company itself or innovate on the company itself as well as, of course, what, what the product is innovating on too? Or did that kind of, did that happen organically to some degree? I, th- I think part of it, is comes from the founders, right? So you've got to have the right intention. Um, and I think when when I started the company, I, when I started thinking about what kind of company we'd like to build, it was pretty simple. It's the kind of company that if you woke up in the morning and went to work, you were uh, excited and you didn't have that sense of kind of like fear and pain and you know, kill me now that like probably we've all had in, in jobs before. So the next thing is, well, okay, that's cool, but h- how do you make that happen? 
And there's definitely some stuff you can do as a founder, but I, I found having a, you know, a, a Thomas, who's our, our director of people and talent, come into that and take that premise and go, well, let, let's like figure out in a really structured way exactly like what it would mean to create an experience at work that would give you purpose, that would make you want to stay at the company and, 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 and so on and so forth. And that, I think I learned a lot from the team on that. I think the other thing that helped is in strategic planning, you know, a CEO at the beginning of the year always sets the strategic plan and it's usually like grow really fast, like ship some great stuff. And then on like page 30, there's like, you know, so people and talent section, which is like, oh, and we need to hire some people and yeah, something about compensation benefits and like whatever. So we reversed that. So we were like, right, well, if we make this claim that we're a people first company and like who doesn't make that claim, what reasons can we point to to make that true. And and a lot of it was just starting at the top saying, well, like our number one priority in 2022 is to build a high-performing and resilient team. That's like number one, right? Like number two is like, let's say we do that and we're successful, let's make the company grow as a result. And, and like number three is, well, and let's ensure that we're building the right things to go and scale our offering. Okay, so coming back onto that point about viewing your people leaders as, as strategists and not supporting uh, functions or, or service providers, uh, let, let's start with the basics. Why do you think that so many companies think this way? Why do they still think that people teams are a, a service provider rather than a, a key strategist alongside maybe their, their sales team or their product team or their marketing team to, to shape the future of the company going forward? So I think that the reason for the, the lag in the market and let's say companies accepting the premise that people and talent is a sort of strategic driver of value as opposed to being a support service is really, I think that we're on some kind of adoption curve here where I think actually there are you know more and more people and leaders, um, especially in technology, but of course not limited to technology, uh, who, who are getting it. Right. And there are some people who are really lagging. And I think like part of it is an outdated perception um, of, you know, if you even take the word human resources, which I just find a really ho horrible phrase, it, it's sort of like this, you know, there's a certain amount of meat you need to introduce into the company, this resource, and they're going to like generate like stuff. And it turns out, guess what? Human beings don't actually operate in that way. And it turns out, I think, in a very competitive market for the best hand, that you, know, you get like an amazing VP level person in pretty much any function of a SaaS company. They're going to work like wherever they want. They can go work for a large company. They can go work for a scale up. So, so like, what what is it that makes people want to work for the company and then stay? And it's not that they've been brought in as a resource to kind of just fill a gap. That's not what it is. Um, so the, the the alignment of the kind of where the companies have real purpose that isn't just like make a fast buck through to like what values they have and are they like real values? All of this stuff has to kind of go right in order to retain those people. So I've definitely seen some laggards in the tech community who face you know this horrendous like people churn like like there's no tomorrow, just like this massive like turnover in their company. And they, they react to that in a weird way. I'll give you an example. I mean, I'm regularly asked by founders to form these kind of weird pacts where people say essentially like, I won't hire your people if you don't hire my people. 
right? And I'm like literally the worst person to ask about that because I've like publicly stated I'll never enter those packs. And I think they're like immoral by nature, but that that's the reaction. So people are sort of addressing the symptom of their people churn as opposed to the cause. And they're saying, hey, look, let's just like prevent people from leaving or give, give like an AE, a six month notice period or whatever it is, as opposed to tackling the root cause, which is actually maybe like your company sucks. Like maybe the way that you've led the company has created a bad culture you know, you've you got to address those fundamental questions. And I've no doubt, you know, Juro, as we scale, we'll see turbulent times. That That's part of the course. But I'll be devoting my energies to, to, to solving the cause, right, and making a place people actually want to work, as opposed to, like, limiting people's career opportunities or whatever these, these kind of strange reactions are. What a horrible reaction to, to, to stifle people's options on the back end when, when you've created a monster that they're trying to escape from. So I, I guess on that, that point, thinking about our, our listener, uh, someone that may be a people leader in a company that maybe has not prioritized culture, has not prioritized people in the early days, has maybe got a little bit too focused on, on growth and product and sales and, and go to market. Is it reversible? Is it something that can actually be be tackled if, if, if they're in a position where they do have a churn problem, where there are cultural problems under, underlying that, that are causing that? As a people leader that is maybe in one of those organizations, what, what sort of advice would you give them to, to, to help try and steer that back in the right direction? Well, well, first, I think those people are the heroes, right? The unsung heroes who are trying to kind of course correct what is probably a mess that the, the founders may be accountable for or some maybe someone else is accountable for. So I think like just trying in, in and of itself is, is awesome. I think to the question of like how uh, as a people leader in an organization facing that kind of that headwind, right? Essentially, like it can feel like sort of pissing into a hurricane to use a kind of horrible phrase, but... It, it can be really ridiculously hard. So how do you create that change? Well, there's all kinds of things that you can do. You can put the basics in place, right? So you can, uh, rather than take the, the the weird values that the founders thought up um, or, you know, one morning, um, you can actually workshop the team and ask them what they, they think is valuable. You can do all of these hygiene things, right? Sometimes the, the, the medicine has to be pretty strong. Right, and sometimes that might look like like surgically removing a whole part of the company. And so I, I think you know if I was a people and talent leader, I would be making quite aggressive recommendations there, and also just evaluating really honestly whether the, the people who you're reporting into, I don't know if it's the, the CEO or the COO or whoever it is, is actually getting the severity of the problem, right? Because if if you can articulate that actually like we've got you know fifty whatever. 50% of our people are churning out during the year and this is a very severe problem you can start talking about how you how you address that Despite a lot of companies not yet giving PeopleOps leaders enough of a voice to make significant changes, there are founders that see the importance of putting talent in people at the center of their strategic plan. And even if your company's not operating in the most lucrative or trendy vertical, a strategic plan that creates a people-first culture can be enough to attract and retain top-level talent. For an in-depth look at what today's top talent is looking for in a company, be sure to download Oyster's 2022 Employee Expectations Report by visiting the link in the show notes or visiting this bit.ly link, bit.ly forward slash Oyster Report. I repeat, bit.ly forward slash oyster report. 
Now, let's hear how Richard thinks PeopleOps leaders can position themselves within their companies so that they can have more influence. So I think there are, there are a few ways you can empower people leaders to be effective. And the first of those is just starting with the org structure. So I was clear from the beginning that people and talent should report directly to me as CEO. Let's assume the CEO says, actually, yes, this is important and you should report to me and this, we should, this should be central to the strategy. I, I think like one of the big things is actually just spending the time between the exec leader um, and, and the CEO to kind of work out what you want to achieve. Uh, so I, I do this monthly and like half day strategy sessions with people and talent, which I've said to them, I'll do as long as they want me to do it. Right. And I think they're starting to sort of outgrow me. Like they're, they're becoming so, so deep in this. Right. But just figure out like, what do you want to achieve? So is there any strategy that is like beyond just like hire people and try and retain them? Like what, what, what do we want to do? I think that's a very worthwhile exercise. And if you get that right, I think you can start to build like a roadmap. So, you know, we talk about this analogy of people and talents as like product managers. So it's kind of like you have a positioning, you have a product strategy, you have a product roadmap. In the same way, you have a you know, company strategy, you have a people and talent strategy, and then you have a people and talent roadmap. And, you know, you can't, you can't achieve everything in one quarter, right? It's exactly the same as, as products. But just having some idea um, and line of sight backwards from initiative to strategy is important. So to give an example, like we, we recently rolled out like a, a major benefits upgrade and like this pretty, pretty normal thing to do at our, our stage of growth. But we try to interrogate, okay, well, who are the users of these benefits? So we actually built like personas internally. And then we tried to like map back the benefits to those personas. So for example, if you offer a benefit to deliver like financial advice around getting a mortgage, actually like a ton of people will be like, hey, like I'm literally like my first job. I can't afford this. It's not for me. And that's okay, right? But you have to you have to like have some line of sight. And equally, like, why are we doing this stuff? Right. So for example, at Juro, we said, well, in 2022, we want to build a high-performing and resilient team. So high performance and resilience become the two kind of pillars. And then down from resilience, like, well, how do we make people resilient? Well, we've got to build a great working environment. How are we going to do that? Well, one of the things is going to be you know, benefits. And this is going to be particularly appealing and useful for this particular persona. And you know, you may come to the same conclusion, right, at the at the end of the day. But I think it's that underlying thinking that makes the difference, right? These tiny little micro details that other companies are not doing. And that can give you a real competitive advantage. So following on with that point, I, I guess starting to get into a bit some of the practical things we were, we were talking about there in terms of the things that people teams need to ship, uh, the, the features, quote unquote, of the company. One of the things we, we've done at Oyster, actually, is we our people team is a little bit uh, unorthodox. It's the, the whole function is called workplace, and, and that contains most of the people team, uh, most of the people related functions you would expect and, and a few other areas, too. So we have talent, we have employee experience and L&D and people operations and uh, a couple of others as well, uh, internal comms and events, the, these sorts of areas. Across the entire function, the people team runs using Scrum. So we kind of took the, 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 the next step in the analogy of, okay, if we're thinking about uh, the company as a product, then maybe we should build it the way that product teams build product and, and, and learn to ship fast and um, iterate and, and, and based on feedback. I'd, I'd love to hear if, if that's something you've considered, if you're doing, or, or if you've approached it in a different way. 
Yeah, well, I think that's that's awesome. So I think definitely the delivery should reflect the strategy. I think at Jury, we're probably somewhere on that journey. So we are operating in effectively sprint cycles, probably not a formal formal kind of agile process, but but something something close. And and I think it's valuable because you know ultimately a lot of this is is project based work, right? So if you're in a you know, in a sales role, like m- most of your work is process based. So, you know, you need to go on lots of calls and you need to kind of like pitch deals and it, it, it's a kind of a, a flywheel of stuff. But I think in, in, especially in people operations, we found a lot of it is a project. And if it's project, then you know, good project management is important, right? So I'll give you an example, like internally, we um, are just refreshing our, our values. And this is one of these exercises that can just, just go on and on and on, right? I mean, like, you know, it's, it's a highly subjective thing. It's very complex. So that is operating effectively in a, you know, a Kanban card. There are a whole stack of deliverables. There is accountability on, you know, what's blocking the, the release of this new kind of values upgrade. I, I think all of those things are important because ultimately, if, if, people in the company um, can see the value that is being delivered and that value is being effectively shipped fast, let's say, then again, people and talent can, can develop this relationship with the company. And you know, we, we call it people and talent, but you know, it's, it's the same kind of thing. We'll develop a relationship with the company where the company says, not only are they being held to the same kind of standards of delivery, but also we're just getting lots of great improvements and often. Uh, I guess you could say one of the anxieties or, or at least things that I, I am cognizant of with the the way we've went of, of, of running scrum uh, agile people operations I guess you could call it is that that way of doing things is quite closely associated with the whole idea of move fast break things you know like being agile kind of going with the flow and <laughs> um, pivoting as you go now we need to be careful with that, right? Because with the work that people teams do, it affects people's livelihoods. We, we are literally dealing with how people keep, you know, a roof over their heads, a roof over the heads of their families, livelihood, all of that. So I'd be interested to hear if the ethos is company is a product, build the company like a product, iterate, think like a product team. Do you think there's a, a line that that analogy shouldn't cross? Do you think that there's 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 parameters to play within there? I think the parameters ultimately need to be set either by the top level leadership and strategic direction or the leaders of that function, right? So I think, yes, there are guardrails which need to be put up. And I think it's it's like anything, you've got to speed up and slow down, right? So for certain things that may not actually require a huge amount of compliance work, you know, we're like organizing a Juro summit in September, there's not like so much like risky compliance stuff and we can like ship a lot of stuff and, and, and make it great. That's a kind of probably a move fast thing. But, you know, for example, if we're choosing between, you know, uh, to the work that Oyster does, an EOR model or a subsidiary model in the world, then it's not the kind of thing you shove on a Kanban board and sort of just like make a quick decision on. You know, you've got to consult with legal, you've got to conduct consult with finance, do research, et cetera. So I think there's a certain quality control process. And like, let's bring this back to the, the product analogy, right? Like, so the kind of quality assurance devs, if you like, coming back and saying, well, this needs to go through the lens of compliance, or this needs to go through the filter of, uh, of finance or whatever it is. But, you know, if, for example, um, you make a, a wrong decision in people and talent, you might, you might have a, you know, actually a, affect severely one of your employees' lives. 
So I want to bring it back on to a point you made at the very beginning of this, which was when you were talking about offer letters. Uh, I, I want to give us plenty of time to talk about this because I think it is. I, I actually don't know if you maybe heard some of the other podcasts where I've spoken about it, but offer letters are, are my like archetypal go to example of something that thinking about building like a product and an offer letter being um, a feature of the company, I think is one of the most maybe impactful things you can do in terms of the experience that is around an offer letter uh, and, and, and approaching things in this way. So uh, yeah, I'd love to just hear more about what, what you think when it comes to this and, and, and how Juro plays into that. The experience of an offer letter is partly the document itself. It's also partly, if we're being really specific, the way in which you receive and interact with that document. Uh, so Juro tries to solve for both things. So the, the first thing is, we have this browser native editor, which we built at Juro, uh, and it's specifically designed for legal documentation like, like offer letters. But it allows for, for example, rich text formatting. So to give, to give an example, you can have a GIF in an offer letter in Juro. And we have had some customers who literally have like some waving picture of the founder. I'm not sure it's necessarily a good idea or bad, but you, you can literally have an embedded GIF in the offer letter. So there is a, a moving image in this legal document, which is something that's like quite radical when, when you think about it. We want to make every touch point absolutely exceptional, and that includes the, the offer letter. So content is part one. Part two of how they interact with the document. And then, you know, recently we've even gone to the level of re releasing uh, branded emails, right? So when you get, if you want to get some transactional email, let's say, you know, Oyster was to use us for that use case is you would have a branded Oyster email as opposed to this like DocuSign envelope, which, you know, everyone knows, like DocuSign, it's like everyone knows about it, but like it isn't the same as your company. And so, so white labeling, all of these micro details in the workflow can have a, a massive effect and a compounding effect on employee experience. Well, that point on brand, I, I think, can, can, can go even further. And again, if that plays into this whole analogy of company as product. Um, if you're thinking of the company as a product, if you're thinking of the features of the company allowing its users to achieve certain, certain outcomes, there is a logical next step, which is thinking, is there an internal brand? And we've actually played around with this a little bit, Oyster, thinking about, do we make every asset that comes out of Oyster's workplace team visually distinguishable, right? Before you even read the content and you know whether it's an offer letter or it's an employee handbook or whatever it is, whatever the asset is, can you tell just from the colors, from the animations, from the font, from all of these things can from the visual identity can you tell that, that is actually oh yeah this has come from the workplace team at oyster I've, I, i've actually seen this do you think that it could actually get to that stage where there is like brand not just taking over white labeled tools as you're saying docusign and these other things do you think that is worthwhile going even the, the next step of of um, people teams having their own brands I, I think so. So I see no reason why people teams should be any different, right? So exactly as you say, companies have users, their users expect to have a brand. People teams have users, their users happen to be the employees of the company, potentially the, the candidates. So I think, you know, what, what do we mean by brand? Obviously visuals, that's, that's very important. Uh, also tone of voice, right? So the, the curious thing, you know, talking about offer letters is, can you have the company's tone of voice in the offer letter? And usually this is a discussion between like people teams and, and legal teams, right? So delivering something like an offer letter or an employment contract in, in Oyster brand, like 
absolutely. Uh, it's possible today. In fact, there are companies doing that via Juro today. And I, and I think that the experience and these touch points that you guys work so hard on all other parts of the life cycle can be brought into this, into this legal step as well. Yeah, I can even give you uh, uh, an anecdote from Oyster uh, that, that backs this up. So in the very, very early days of Oyster, one of the, one of the first things I did um, is I created a few different Notion documents that were essentially culture docs. And I remember talking to one of our earliest employees that said that those uh, culture docs that I created were one of the biggest drivers of them applying to the company and, and wanting to join. And then they went through their interview process, they got accepted, and then when they got the offer letter, they nearly boomeranged, they nearly ran because wow. of, of the, of the jar, how jarring an experience it was going from the docs that I had written that were all about transparency, all about being open, the tone of voice that they had used, um, and, and, and yeah, the language there versus this very, very boilerplate, very, very corporate offer letter that we just hadn't really gotten around to at that point. Um, so again, I guess it just it comes back to what we're talking about, this like consistent experience. If you have this, um, this whiplash effect through a, a candidate's experience, it can have pretty drastic effects. How can people, ops leaders, position themselves as creative thinkers, as strategic partners within the business, within their organizations? So I think the way that people, ops leaders can position themselves is really through action. So I think there's, you know, part of it is the presentation, of course, which is, you know, who, I don't know, who do you, who do you report to? What, what are you doing in the company? I, I think, you know, our people and talent team have done a very good job at Notion, right? So we use Notion as our kind of central wiki and like getting to a very, very good level of documentation. I think is very important because actually that's some of the documentation that everyone will read, right? So whether it's your handbook or whatever it is, and just sneak in there a document called People and Talent Strategy and just expose it to the company. I think this this was quite impactful and everyone's like read it, <laughs> so which is which is a huge feat given how much documentation there is in, in 2022. So get the documentation right, get get the strategy nice and present. I think the level of transparency we operate at is every all hands um, we're reporting not on sort of here are some announcements that you need to know but here's how our pnt strategy is is developing there are unsolicited monthly looms with metrics that come from the people and talent team just oversharing and over communicating that that pro progress and, and, and citing it and rooting it in data which i think is very very important and then just delivery Right. So, you know, we, you talked about this sort of amazing agile kind of um, organization you're kind of building at, at Oyster. I think the more you start shipping things in an impressive way, that is, is kind of almost the, the mirror of positioning, which is like you're delivering on the promise. Right. So you set up the promise in the right way and deliver on the promise. I, I think just doing that good work time and time again will make everyone in the company see the value. Let's talk about the future. As you mentioned, this is a, this is a transition that you and I both agree is, is happening in uh, the workplace right now in terms of appreciation in this area. What are your predictions for people operations in this regard over the next uh, five, 10 years, whether that's generally or also potentially within your own space? 
So I think my predictions for the next kind of year or so is that the, the main narrative is going to be around sustainable growth. So we're kind of moving out of the uh, high cash burn, high growth world into the low cash burn, like medium growth world. Uh, and I think all functions will have to look at that very closely. I think in, in people and talent, it might mean you know, reduced hiring plans. Uh, it might mean that horrendous phrase from CEOs do more with less. I think over and beyond that, I think... CEOs will gradually realize that ultimately, especially during the scale-up phase of startups, it kind of just comes down to the people in the end, right? Like, you know, you can have the best strategy in the world and the best product in the world, but actually, if you don't bring in great execs, you hire amazing people in the organization, they're not enabled. It actually just does, it doesn't work. I think as well, it'd be interesting to see how execs um, move from people and talent. So seen some great examples of people and talent leaders moving to COO roles, I'd be interested to see whether people and talent leaders move to CEO roles. And what's next for you in Juro? We're firmly in the scale-up phase now. So we've kind of in the last year uh, doubled our headcount. Uh, we grew last year by 200%. And so we're kind of entering this different different motion. I think in people and talent terms, I think one of the the central narratives for us now has been a focus on high performance. So I think a lot of companies go through that journey of um, the, the utopia of the early days where everyone is sort of in this flat hierarchy, just like doing great work. So what's that going to look like? And I think navigating also culturally this question of performance, right, which is you know operating in the, the to use a cliche, uh, a team, not a family. What will that look like for us? I think that's a big thing that we, we're kind of currently navigating. So last question, and we ask all of our guests here on New World of Work this question. What is the best mistake you've ever made and why? So I think the best mistake I've made was choosing a, a career in law. I call this the best mistake because I, I don't think I was cut out to be a great lawyer, but I, I did do it because I think it was um, or something that certainly, you know, every mother wants to say that their son is a, you know, or daughter is a, a lawyer or a doctor or whatever it is. Um, but what I learned about there were the people we now serve at Juro. And I think there are some remarkable lawyers in the community. I, I think probably I would never have have been one of them. And of course, it gave me the insight behind, behind Juro. Um, and I think without that experience, I wouldn't have founded this company. Uh, and I wouldn't have been in a, in a good position to understand the customers that we founded the company to serve. I still have a battle with my mother five years on, where gradually she's coming around to the idea I shouldn't go back to the law firm, uh, and that this Juro thing actually may have been you know, an okay thing to do. And I think with every sort of, you know, million in ARR or with every award or whatever it is. I think her, her conviction shifts slightly. But um, again, without the experience, I don't think um, we would have been on this journey with Juro, which is something I've, I've really loved doing. The way that Richard has built Juro reminds me a lot of how we've built our business as a product philosophy at Oyster. It's encouraging to see that this mindset is growing and helping make the workplace better. Here are a few of my key takeaways from this episode. As PeopleOps leaders, we can help our staff fall in love with our product, which in our case is the company itself. This starts with a leadership team that believes in a people-first strategy. By designing staff touchpoints and processes in a way that brings our company culture to life, you're building a brand within your organization that can have a powerful impact. 
Certain touch points and processes will require deeper consideration and serious quality assurance to avoid putting your staff at risk, while others can be more experimental and use a fail-fast approach. As employee expectations change, getting your staff touch points right could be the difference between increasing retention rates and a candidate rejecting an offer letter. Even the best product in the world won't be successful without the right people working to bring it to your customers. If you're interested in what today's job seekers are looking for in an employer, be sure to check out the 2022 Employee Expectations Report by visiting the link in the show notes or visiting this bit.ly link, bit.ly forward slash oyster report. I repeat, bit.ly forward slash oyster report. Thank you for listening to New World of Work, the podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce through an international lens. We hope this episode served to expand your horizons and open your mind to a new perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so that we can reach more listeners. I'm your host, Reese Black. See you next time.